All right, guys, so we're going to be closing out our series today, Drawing Near to God. And because man must not live on bread alone, but every word of God, I'm just going to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Uh, we're actually just going to be taking another step from what Tony preached on last week. Tony preached on chapter 15. We're going to be looking at Genesis 16. So we're going to be reading from verses 1 through 15. 1 through 15. Again, Genesis 16, verses 1 through 15. Okay, I'll be reading from verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram said to Sarai, Here your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has called, I mean, heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. And so she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? That is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. And Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Let's close our eyes and pray. Father, as we step into this text, I pray, Lord, that you may help us to have willing ears and willing hearts. That this may not just be just another Sunday where your word comes in ear in and ear out. That your word may pierce us. It may comfort us. And that you may help us for a minute to recognize that this is where eternal life lies. That your words have authority. Um, That as I preach, though I have no authority, your word does. And it brings life and expands your kingdom, Lord. So I pray that you may help us to be attentive. You may help us to love. And that way you may fall deeper and deeper in your grace, in the ocean of your love. Realizing more and more from this story that you are good to us. And that your ways are more better than our ways. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so growing up, we've all heard somewhere or another, a story about a dog. 
And the one that I've heard the most often was a story about Hachiko. So Hachiko was a story about a Inu dog, and this dog was adopted by this man named Ueno. Okay? Ueno was a professor at University of Tokyo. And he adopted this dog named Hachiko, and they had this like very cute relationship every day. So Ueno and his dog Hachiko would walk to the train station together. And once they arrived, Ueno would turn to his dog and make a promise. I'm going to come back. I'm going to go to work. I need you to stay here. People will take care of you, and I'll come back. And so that went on, that routine, for several years. Ueno would drop off his dog at the train station, and he would go to work. And every time Ueno would come back and pick up his dog. Until one day, he didn't. See, Ueno, on his way back home from work, suffered a brain hemorrhage. And he ended up passing away. And of course, Hachiko, being a dog, didn't realize that his owner was dead. And so he sat at that train station waiting for his master to come home. He waited there for nine years. Until the day he died, he waited for his master to come back home. Not because um, he understood the words, right, because he's a dog, but because he trusted in his master and in the promises that his master has given him. Um, even though other people would come in and try to adopt the dog, he would always run away, and he would always go right back, rain in, rain out, to that same train station. And while Ueno wasn't able to fulfill his promises because of the brokenness of sin, because of death, our God does. Our God makes promises with us, and he always keeps his promises. And many times, we're not willing to wait a year, let alone two, let alone nine. We think our ways are better, and so the moment our promises aren't fulfilled, we feel like he's failed us. God's not coming back, and so we dip. But as Wendell loved Hatsuko, his dog, our master, our God, calls us friend, and he loves us infinitely more. And so throughout the series, Drawing Near to God, we discussed, and Tony talked about what it means to draw near to our master. What does it mean to trust God through difficult circumstances, through suffering? What does it mean to hope against hope in moments of discouragement? What does it mean to be mastered by him? What does it mean to recognize that following him means giving him your everything? What does it cost? And as we close out this series, the one addition that I want to make, the one ribbon I want to close out this series with is for us to recognize that for us to draw closer to God, it means that we have to trust him. It means we have to love him. We have to recognize that he is the one who fulfills his promises. And so we trust in God because he fully sees you and he loves you. Sweeter than, more satisfying than anything else in this world. Anything that you could think of. Because this God is a God who walks through your circumstances, your discouragements, your suffering, and he's not cold. He sees you for where you're at, and he utterly and completely knows you, and he truly loves you. And so if you guys have heard me preach before, something that I like to do is called a sermon in a sentence. So what that basically means is if there's anything you guys take away from this sermon, it is this one sentence, right? If you guys fall asleep, you guys just get distracted, this is the one sentence to just anchor you guys and bring you guys back home. The sermon in a sentence is, trust in the God more than your plans, because he sees and cares for you completely. Let me say that again. Trust in God more than your plans, because he sees and cares for you completely. And we have two points for us today. Number one, 
trusting your own plans will always go south. Number two, trust in God, for he sees and he hears you completely. Okay, so giving us a little bit of context before we jump into verse 1. See, in Genesis 12, Abram is given a promise. God tells him from the land of Ur, if you guys think back to uh, the Tower of Babel, Ur, like close by, God comes in, he calls Abram and says, I want you to leave your hometown, I want you to leave your idols, and I want you to come with me to the land of Canaan. I'm going to make you into a great nation. So you might be thinking, all right, Kevin, what does it mean to be a great nation? And to be made into a great nation means two things. Number one, Abram is going to be given dominion over land. Number two, Abram is going to be given many children. And if you guys think back to Genesis 3, if you guys think back to the fall, then you guys might suddenly pick up on the language here, right? When God cursed um, Adam and Eve, the two curses that came with the fall was that land will be hard to work on and childbearing will be painful. And so when Abram is given these blessings, it's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to give you the blessings that reverses the curses of sin. I'm going to give you the blessings that corresponds literally the opposite of Genesis 3. And so Abram, being 75 years old, this blessing sounds way too good to be true. And Sarai was 60, uh, 65, and she was way past the age of having children. You guys can kind of think of that now. It would be really weird for a 65-year-old to have a child. And so Sarai, at 65, when she's given this word, um, seems like a long shot, far-fetched, near impossible. And with every passing week, and every passing month, it seems more and more unlikely. And by the time we hit Genesis 16, which our story picks up on, it's been 10 years. 10 years and no children, no heir. And after all that drama that took place in Genesis 15, with God blessing Abram, Abram saying, um, I don't have a child. Who's going to be my heir? Shebanese of Damascus be my heir. And God said, no, because I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to confirm and secure that promise by cutting up these animals. I alone am going to walk through it. So if I break this promise, the cost is on me. After all of that, here we are, Genesis 16, no child for Abram, no child for Sarah. And with every passing year, Sarah feels more and more doubt. With every passing decade, right, it seems like this promise is unlikely. And that brings us to point one. Trust in your own plans will always go south. Let me say that again. Trust in your own plans will always go south. Let's go ahead and reread verses one through six. Abram's wife Sarah had not borne any children for him. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Just giving a little bit of context here. So Hagar was picked up back when Abram, if you guys are familiar with the story of Genesis 12 and 13, um, Abram went to Egypt, ran away to Egypt. And when he met the Pharaoh, um, he almost like pimped out his wife. His wife almost ended up in a harem. And um, during that time period, he receives um, gifts from the Pharaoh, one of them being Hagar as a slave. And so verse 2, Sarah said to Abram, since the Lord hath prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan for ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. 
And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. And Abram replied to Sarai, here your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. So when we look at these six verses, it's pretty clear that Haggai, Hagar is the victim here. But this is still a story about three sinners with three broken circumstances. And sometimes we tend to read biblical stories, like the way that we like to watch Disney movies. We like to pretend that we're the heroes, and the heroes are caricatures of good virtues, and the villains are someone we always have to demonize. But what Moses is showing us here as he's writing the story is that in real life, everyone is gray. We are all our sinners, save Jesus Christ. And so David was a sinner, Abram was a sinner, and we're also sinners. And so as we read the story, we should learn from the brokenness of the biblical characters and be encouraged by God's faithfulness to them. And so we see three characters who put their plans above God's, and three characters whose plans go south. We have Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. So first is Sarai. So in verse 2, Sarah says almost bitterly to God, God has prevented me from having a family. And you can't help but sense this is more than just anger. There's a deep, deep bitterness and hurt here. It's almost as if she's saying, God, this is your fault. For decades, I was fine with the idea I wouldn't have a kid. But you gave me a promise, and it's been a decade. Where are you? But the wheels are turning in Sarai's head. Since plan A isn't working, since God isn't working, how about plan B? And so she surveys the room, she looks around, and she sees Hagar, the Egyptian girl. There she thinks. My Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. Now, this seems obviously, I hope, sinful and foolish to us. Like, how can this go well? Telling your husband, hey, I got this servant girl, why don't you have sex with her, and we can have a kid through her. Like, that seems pretty evil. But we have to recognize that in that time period, this was normal, right? We see in Harari's code, we see in the uh, literatures in that time period that this was normalized. Just like how slavery was normalized during the transatlantic slave trade. Just how other broken sins were normalized in our lives and in our world. And this is not God's way, but it wasn't unusual for that time period. And this is actually a good reminder for us in our own age, that sometimes maybe we need to take a step back from our own culture and think to ourselves, what are the sins that are normal in our life that sometimes we just normalize that we don't think about? That's why it's so important for us to read from people who are already dead because it gives us an opportunity to see what is it that we see as normal today that are sinful. Because it's easy for us to look at people from the 1900s, 1800s, read their works and think to ourselves, yeah, they're sexist, yeah, they're racist, but if they looked at us, or maybe people from 100 years from now looked at us today, what will be some sins that are obviously sinful and broken? And so what Sarai and Abram did was absolutely normal for their time period, especially if you're from a rich family like Abram and Sarai, and you had a servant girl. But Sarai doesn't see her sin, and her doubt of God's promises, and in her hurt and her brokenness, 
she doesn't see it and gives Hagar to Abram as his wife. And before we jump into demonizer, we have to recognize her circumstances, right? We can relate to her. We can learn from her. Because you have to imagine how Sarai felt at 75. She's never had a child. And in that time period, your worth comes from you having a child. And so you go through decades feeling like, one, you're worthless, but two, you've not only let yourself down, but you let your family down, you let Abram down, and it's on you. And so you have to imagine that she's not angry at God for the sake of being angry at God, but Sarah endured months and years and decades of feeling like she failed. So the best way for me to kind of illustrate this idea um, comes from, you guys all probably know at this point that I work, there. I work at a high school called Bosco High School, and um, I teach AP Gov. And one of my students, um, he has a D in my class, but he came up to me and he was like, Mr. Jung, I have a full ride, to, uh, a full ride scholarship to Stanford because he plays football. And he's really good at being a cornerback, which I thought was a quarterback, but apparently a cornerback is a position by itself. And he needs to get a B in my class. And so I told him, well, we have an exam coming up. Why don't you study my PowerPoints? Hint, hint, study my PowerPoints. Right? That's what I told my entire class. Study my PowerPoints. And so when the exam, uh, exam day came, he didn't look at my PowerPoints, and instead he tried to study off, uh, online. He tried to look up the answers for my test. He comes in, and he fails. Right? And everyone else around him is saying, like, you know, this exam was so easy. Because I put the exact questions on my exam on my PowerPoints. All he had to do was just look it up, and you would see the FRQ questions, the essay questions. And so when we try to do things our own way, and we don't listen, we create problems for ourselves that doesn't have to exist. And so with good intentions and trying to put her family's needs above her own, Sarah tries to go with her plan, plan B, and give Hagar to Abram. Flat out in rebellion against God's promises. And the question for us today is, is this you, church? Despite the promises that God has given you, where are areas where you're compromising? Where you think to yourselves, plan A isn't working, God's not working, it's been years, so I'm going to do things my way. Are you cheating on a test if you're in college? grad school? If you're working, are you putting numbers instead of principles? Where are areas where you're compromising in your life? Because the life of a Christian faith means trusting in God's way because we recognize it's always the best way. No matter how far-fetched, how irrational, how impractical, how delayed, or how impossible it may seem, we recognize that God is sovereign. He is good. He knows what he's doing. And he, I don't know why he puts you guys in some of the problems that you guys have. But we need to recognize that when we trust in God, we trust that the problems that we have are there for a reason. And so we want to stick to the problems that God gives us instead of making up new problems on our own. Okay, the second character that puts their plan above God's is Abram. So chapter 15 that we heard from Tony is a great, great chapter of Abram's faith. Abram believes in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But chapter 16, the story that we see today, is a great failure in faith. 
which kind of shows that that's a Christian life. Sometimes you're great one day, and the next day you fall flat on your face. And so in chapter 16, in response to Hagar getting pregnant, Sarai lashes out and hurt to Abram. In verse 5, we see her say, you are responsible for my suffering. I put a slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became uh, despicable or contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. And then Abram commits the exact same sin that we see Adam commit. He's passive. In verse 6, he has a responsibility. He has an opportunity to talk to her. But instead, he passes the blame back to Sarai. He says, do whatever you want. It's not my problem. She's your problem. In fact, from the very beginning in verse 2, where Sarai turns to Abram and says, hey, how about we get Hagar to give you a son? Abram has a responsibility to say, we don't need to. God made a promise to us. He has a responsibility to comfort her, to be there for her. But instead, Abram is passive and simply goes along with it. And, quote, I am not saying that listening to your wife is a bad idea. That's typically a wise thing to do. But here in particular, in the garden, Adam receives the command. And he knew better, but he was passive and he listens to his wife. In this story, Abram receives a promise. He knows better, but he's passive and he listens to his wife. And so again, the question for us today is, is this you, church? Can you relate to the character of Abram where you're placed constantly in places where you know better and you don't speak up? Maybe it's the fear of evangelizing to your friends, even though you know that God is pulling in your heart. Maybe it's the fear of telling your brothers and sisters in Christ that what they're doing is wrong, that they're in sin, but you're afraid of the way that they might talk to you or they might look at you. You're afraid of confrontation, so you're passive. You just let things go. Um, So back when I was a junior in high school, I took AP Bio. And during AP Bio, the finals was that I had to dissect a cat, right? And so we're given 50 minutes to dissect a cat. I didn't think it was fair because I only had four people, and we had this, like, fat, oversized, Garfield, 20-pound cat. And it's really, really hard to dissect a cat when it just has fat. And so we're spending 50 minutes cutting it up, trying to take out the fat, right? And we don't finish in time. And so me being my anxious-filled, stressed-out high school self, I turn to the teacher and I ask him, please, can I take this home? And he says, sure. And so we take the cat, and we try to take it to our parents. My mom's like, no, that smells disgusting. None of my group's parents let them take it home. And so my friend comes up with a brilliant idea. This is an apartment with a swimming pool. Let's do it there. And I think to myself, this is a bad idea. But, you know, I'm passive, and I kind of want the A, so we just go along with it, right? We go in. And uh, we see a lot of kids running around and playing. And so we decide, you know, we don't want to dissect a cat in front of, like, seven-year-olds because that kind of sends a bad message. Let's do it at night. Thought to myself, this is a bad idea. But, you know, being passive, I just went along with it. Let's just go and try to get this done. So we wait until midnight because, you know, no one comes out at midnight, right? And so we're out in the uh, swimming pool at, like, one of the tables. Um, there's an umbrella thing, so we put our flashlights up there, our phones, and we have our scalpels and our stuff, and we're just trying to cut this open and finish this, right? And this woman opens her window, stares at us, just slams it in and runs away. I think to myself, this is a bad idea. 
I sh- we should go. But you know, we're almost done, and um, I feel like saying something would look, make me look really bad at this time. And so we keep going along with it. And it's not until the cops show up that I turn to my classmates and I say, hey guys, this was a bad idea. We shouldn't have done this. But at that point, it was already too late, and the cops were asking me why we were sacrificing a cat to Satan. Yeah. And so being active is important for our faith. We know better, and so we should speak up. And so the last character that puts their plans above God's is Hagar. When Hagar sleeps with Abram, he, uh, she immediately becomes pregnant, and Sarai is shattered. She's broken. Because this proves that the problem of infertility was not Abram. It was her. And so that doubles the pain that she's feeling. And so she's frustrated and jealous. And Hagar, in return, is more than a little pleased with herself. She starts flaunting it. And in verse 4, we see that Hagar is looking down on Sarah. And it has to have been really obvious. We just assume that this was obvious. Because in verse uh, 5, Sarah notices it and complains to Abram, lashes out and says, you know, Hagar's looking down on me. And it's in a short summary, is this you, church? Maybe you're active in your faith. Maybe you trust God's promises above your own. But are you prideful in your own blessings and in your own circumstances? Are you so prideful that it's at the expense of your other brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, Let me give an example of where this is done right, where this is done correctly. Um, It's in a church in Kentucky. Um, This man named uh, Greg Gilbert was sharing a story about how on Friday nights at his church, what he does is he just opens up prayer requests. So like he would look around the room and say, um, like, Ivan, do you have a prayer request? Why don't you come up? And then he would assign somebody to pray for them. Like, Stephen, can you pray for Ivan? And it will keep going on and on. And every week he would notice that these two couples had the exact same prayers. They were both struggling with infertility. And so they both bonded over this pain, over weeks and decades of hurt, of tears. And one day, during these prayer request nights, uh, couple A, the husband raised his hand and said, we have a prayer request. We have a child. And so the congregation goes through two immediate feelings at the same time. First, they immediately applause and praise God. And two, it dawns on them that this brings in a level of tension for couple B. Because they all knew about this relationship that couple A and B had. And so the pastor is looking around the room and trying to defuse the situation, just find somebody to pray for couple A. When he sees the husband of couple B, just shoot his hands up. He looks up and he says, we would like to pray for them. And so in what I imagine to be the most painful but godly way, he begins to praise God for giving couple A a blessing that they've not received, and they wept and was hurt for. And so, church, that's what it looks like when we're humble and we bring in a level of humility and we're willing to let down our prides and enjoy blessings that one another has and mourn with the brokenness that we have as well. And so we see in verse 6, in response to Hagar's pride, Sarai lashes out and mistreats Hagar so intensely that Hagar runs away. 
And we have to just think about the amounts that this mistreatment must have been. We don't know what it was. It could have been physical. It could have been verbal. But the fact that Hagar runs away has to show us that this was intense. Because Hagar is a pregnant woman running away from the only source of food and water into the desert. And if we look at the locations that she's running away to, she's going south. She's trying to go back to Egypt. She's trying to get back home. And it's a long way away, and the chances of her dying are pretty much certain. But she feels like running away is better than having to live under Abram and Sarai. And so she runs away. And we have to think about Sarai. Like, Sarai has to have been hurting intensely. She wants nothing more than to have a child. And she devises a scheme, and it backfires. And now her lowly maidservant, who's pregnant with her husband, what could be worse than this? And out of that deep pain and hurt, she lashes out. And she deals harshly with Hagar, and Hagar runs away south. We see an example of someone who's hurt, hurt others. Now Hagar runs away south, back to Egypt. And with that, the first half of this passage ends with, I hope no one's surprised, a tragedy. Turns out a plan of telling your husband to have sex with your slave so that you can have a child is not a good plan. And so Hagar is prideful, Sarai is, je- um, Sarai is jealous, and Abram is passive. And all three are putting their plans above God's promises in his kingdom. So point two, trust in God for he sees and hears you fully. Say that again, trust in God for he sees and hears you fully. I'm going to read verses 7 through the end of 15. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, um, yeah, Hagar, by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived, and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And you will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are Elroy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. This is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. So Hagar is running into the wilderness, as I said before, going south. Um, I'm just going to point this out. This is a double conundrum. Like, it's one of my joys in putting together sermons. See, your plants will go south. Hagar is literally running south. She's going to the wilderness. Thank you. And she sees the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord does something that neither Abram and Sarai are willing to do. The angel of the Lord starts off by humanizing her. See, you guys may have noticed her name showed up in the chapter, but did you notice that Abram and Sarai never calls Hagar by name? She's always my servant or that Egyptian girl. They don't even name her. But the moment the angel of the Lord encounters Hagar, he calls her by name. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where you come from and where are you going? 
This is the only known instance, like not just in the Bible, this is the only known instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where God addresses a woman by name. Abram and Sarah would not name her, but the Lord does. Hagar. He honors her, he dignifies her, and he empowers her. He tells her you were made in the image of Christ, or you are made in the image of God, and you deserve dignity and respect. Then after dignifying her, he gives her a task that seems near insurmountable, near impossible. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord says to go back. To go back to the ones that abused her, the ones that used her, go back. And we have to imagine that the power to accomplish such a task can only be done by someone who recognizes the sweetness of God. Hagar was willing to go die in the wilderness because she wanted to get away from her captors, obeys the Lord, and goes back. And so how do we find the ability to go through our struggles and our brokenness when they seem near impossible? It's because we know the sweetness of God. We recognize that while we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinners, God laid down his life for us. And he came down as flesh, walked up to the cross, and that the same hand that was pierced for our transgressions is the same hand that gives us our problems and guides us. That God is willing to be there for us. Um, a good example for this is from an anime called Violet Evergarden. Okay, an anime called Violet Evergarden. And in this anime, we have an example um, where this woman recognizes that she's going to die soon. Right? This woman recognizes that she's going to die soon, and she has a daughter. This daughter is really young, and so she wants to be able to be there for her daughter. She recognizes that as she, when she passes away, her daughter is not going to be able to face um, the problems of adolescence and growing up on her own. And so this woman hires somebody else to write letters for her. And so she spends months writing down letters. And, you know, the entire time the child doesn't understand, and the child feels like her mom's not spending time with her, so she kicks and rages, gets mad, throws tantrums. But when her mother passes away, on the child's birthday, she receives a letter from her mom, guiding her, advising her, telling her what to do, encouraging her. And every birthday until she turns 18, she receives a letter from her mom. And that voice, that letter, gives her the power to go through problems of growing up in an orphanage. And so, likewise, we can do difficult things because God's voice is with us. Because as we read the scriptures, we see that God loves us and he cares for us. And in verses 10 through 12, God gives Hagar a reason to trust in him. He gives her a promise. The angel of the Lord tells Hagar, you will be blessed. You will have more descendants than you can even count. Now, keep in mind, this is not the same promise as Abram, but it's similar. It does not mean that through Ishmael, Jesus will come. But it does mean that God hears Hagar's afflictions and suffering and tears, and he is blessing her with children. And in response to all of this, in verse 13, Hagar looks at God, the angel of the Lord, and he's, he gives her a name. I mean, she gives him a name. She says, you are the God of seeing. And this is the only time in all of Scripture where somebody gives a name to God. 
think about that. The only time in all of scripture where someone gives a new name to God is from this lowly foreign servant named Hagar. Because Hagar realized something about God that we all need to make sure we don't forget. Her name reveals something powerful about God. It's that he hears the cries of those who suffer. He sees the pains of those who come to him in humility. David will mention this a couple hundred years later, where he says, a broken heart, a contrite spirit, you will not deny. And Jesus will mention this later on, where he says, a bruised reed, you will not break. The name reveals what this passage is about. It's that God hears, he knows, he listens to you, and he hears you. Um, So recently, I was reading an essay about why there was this huge rise of um, like reality TV shows, why the History Channel went from showing documentaries to showing Pawn Stars, right? And the essay said it's because of this idea called front stage, backstage. And if you guys took a sociology class, you guys are familiar with those terms. And so what the author was saying was every day that we go out and interact with somebody, we're putting on a performance, we're putting on a mask, We're trying to act like the person that we want to be or how we want them to view us, right? And so sometimes we even take TV or media or books as inspiration. For example, if somebody came to me and said, hey, Kevin, my friend passed away, I think to myself, okay, in TV shows and media, how am I supposed to act? What questions am I supposed to say? What role am I supposed to play? And then we play those roles. And it's only when we go to the backstage, when we're alone, that our true selves come out. We take off our mask, we're not worried about how people view us, and we're honest with ourselves. And so the author was saying that the reason why people love reality TV shows is because we all know it's fake, but it almost seems more real than real life. So we're able to see the backstage of all these characters, see their true selves. But if we read the story, and we recognize that God truly sees us, that should both pierce us and it should comfort us. Right? It should pierce us because it should help us recognize that God sees your backstage. Any wicked thought you thought, any time you've sinned, even when you're trying to suppress it and not think about it, even when you're trying to ignore it, God sees everything. God hears everything. God knows everything about you. But it should comfort us. Why? Because he sees every tear you've cried, even when no one else has. He hears every cry for help, even if no one hears that cry. In the universe, despite all the noise, God hears every cry for help. And he's there with you. And it was when Hagar realized that she was able to turn to God, the angel of the Lord, and say, are you the God who truly sees me? More for my function, more for my job, more for who I am. Do you truly see who I am? And God does. He sees you for who you truly are, every piece of you. And he still sees you and he thinks to himself, you are willing or he is still willing to die on the cross for your sins, that you're still worth it, that he still loves you. That should bring us comfort. And so in this series, we've heard that drawing near to God means being refined through suffering. It means that as we draw closer to God, suffering still happens. We've also learned that it means being mastered by him, that it means hoping despite hope, against hope, despite discouragements. 
It means recognizing the cost of making God your everything. But we can only draw closer to God when we trust in him. And we recognize he sees all of you and he has a promise for you. And we have to trust in that promise, even if it takes decades. Because he is faithful. And when he promises in Revelation 21.4 that every tear, every sadness will be wiped away, that will happen. So I urge you guys to engage with your God, to trust in him, draw closer to him, because the God who sees you is the one that names you, cares for you, and sends his only son down the cross for you. Let's pray.